Thanks for listening to the Inner Life Podcast. Be sure to join us every weekday at 11 a.m. Central on Relevant Radio or on the Relevant Radio app. Find your local Relevant Radio station at RelevantRadio.com or stream us live every day on the Relevant Radio app. It's time to set out on the pathway to healing and light. This is The Inner Life on Relevant Radio. If you have questions or concerns about your faith journey, if you are struggling or searching for something more, if you are in need of some spiritual direction, our Catholic priests are here to help. One heart at a time. Welcome to The Inner Life on Relevant Radio. Welcome to The Inner Life here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. I'm Josh Raymond, and hope your Tuesday is off to a good start. A big thank you to Patrick Connolly, who sat in yesterday as I was able to actually uh, had a a childhood friend, uh, somebody that I've known since we were both about 9 or 10 years old. We were able to spend some time together, he and his family that traveled out to visit our family. And uh, we've just been friends for years and years and years, so it was was kind of a nice time to get together and spend that extra day there. So again, thanks to Patrick for filling in yesterday. Today, well, are you... Are you familiar with most of the laws in your area, whether it's laws in your city or your county, your state, even federal laws? Do you feel like you've got a pretty good handle on most of the basic laws that govern you, at least the ones that impact you? But, you know, if you start digging, you will find that there are some really crazy laws that exist, laws that probably seem pointless or absolutely bizarre. For instance, in the city of Berkeley, California, it's illegal to whistle for your lost canary before 7 a.m. And there's, there's a number of things that this law then implies. First of all, someone living in Berkeley at some point in the past, they apparently lost a canary, tried to find it by whistling for it in the early morning hours, and they whistled so much or so loudly that at least one person decided this needs to stop. And they went through the process of creating a law to prohibit that specific activity. Of course, if you lose your parakeet or your messenger pigeon or whatever other kind of bird, with that bird you can whistle, you know, trying to find them before 7 a.m. all you want in Berkeley, but not for your lost canary. There's a county in Washington state where in 1969 a law was created that made the slaying of Bigfoot a felony punishable by up to five years in prison. That was in 1969. That law was actually revisited in 1984, changed from a felony to a misdemeanor, and instead of five years, now it carried a one-year jail sentence along with a $1,000 fine. And that revised law in 1984 also declared that Bigfoot, even though Sasquatch has not ever officially been discovered, But that law stated that Bigfoot is an endangered species. If you live in Marion County, this is in Indiana, and if you decide you're going to ride your horse where you're going, be warned that it is illegal to go faster than 10 miles per hour while riding your horse anywhere in Marion County there in Indiana. If you live in Maryland, did you know that there's a law that prohibits wearing sleeveless shirts in public parks? Even if you're exercising or jogging, can't wear a sleeveless shirt. 
Here's another one. 11 years ago, the governor of Tennessee signed a bill into law that makes it illegal for you to use a friend's Netflix password and log into their account. Even if you have their permission, you can't use their password, can't use their account. You got to use your own Netflix account. And in Virginia, it is against the law to hunt or kill any type of wild bird or wild animal on Sundays. And I, I read this on their on the, the Virginia State website of laws that they have. This includes all nuisance species, except for raccoons. You can apparently kill as many raccoons as you want on a Sunday in the state of Virginia, but no other wild animals or wild birds. Now, of course, every state has weird laws like these. Something that was put into place at a time where, for whatever reason, it was deemed appropriate and not only appropriate, but necessary. Some of those laws that are kind of strange, they're just common sense, basic common sense, but they're still written into law, like in Alabama. They have a law that it's illegal to drive while you're blindfolded. Probably didn't need that law, but at some point, somebody must have been driving blindfolded, right? In Oklahoma, there's a law prohibiting, and this is, again, from their state website. This is a quote. It prohibits secret loitering about any building with intent to overhear discourse therein and to repeat or publish the same to vex, annoy, or injure others. I mean, that's basically just don't, don't eavesdrop and don't gossip. But that's a law in Oklahoma. But even with those common sense laws that are meant to keep you and me and others safe, I think it's pretty natural when we come across some of them, we end up thinking, who thought we even needed to write this down? Who thought we needed an actual law about this? And then it might make you curious as to what are some of those other laws that actually exist? What might you or I be doing where we just unknowingly innocently we're breaking a law well even in the catholic church we have a collection of laws that govern most everything inside the church and even the way that the church relates outside of the church these laws are called canon law and today we're going to spend the hour speaking with a canon lawyer trying to help us understand why canon law is important and especially important to every catholic and how it impacts us you know, something that might not seem like it has any bearing on our day-to-day -day lives as Catholics. Why is canon law important? And that canon lawyer that's joining us is Father Ramil Fajardo. He is a regular voice here on The Inner Life. He is a priest in the Archdiocese of Chicago, a resident priest at Holy Name Cathedral. He is also a judge of the Metropolitan Tribunal. Uh, he serves as the director of Liturgy and the Cardinal's Delegate for St. James Chapel and the Archbishop Quigley Pastoral Center and is the Rector of the National Shrine of St. Francis Xavier Cabrini. Uh, Father Ramil, welcome back to The Inner Life. So glad to have you here today. Good morning, Josh. Thank you very much for having me back. Well, so canon law. We're going to talk about canon law, and I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb here, even though I have not read through the majority of canon law. But I'm going to say that there's probably not any bizarre or pointless uh, laws that you would have in canon law. Am I correct on that? Yes, you are correct. the The Church, in her wisdom, sought laws that were first and foremost a reflection of the gospel. And I think I should say that um, we Americans have a fascination with law because we as a country and as a people are very uh, law-oriented. 
I just, my experience has always been that Americans need to know clear lines and distinctions. What is legal? What is not legal? What do I have to do? What should I not do? What must I not do? So the church, obviously mirroring, mirroring society and, and a universal, um, and a universal outlook has placed since 1983 in the, in the code of canon law, 1983 code of canon law, the operations of the church anchored on the gospel, as called for by the Second Vatican Council. So quickly, let me just explain that. In 1917, Pope Benedict XV promulgated a, the, the official code of canon law, the P.O. Benedictine Code. And even in 1917, it was already considered a little stuffy. It was a little obsolete in the sense that it was very rural and very um, just old-fashioned. They already recognized it in 1917. So by the time Pope John the 23rd, Pope St. John the 23rd convoked the Vatican Council, he also called for a review and a reform of the Code of Canon Law, which was completed in 1983 and promulgated by Pope St. John Paul II. And currently our Holy Father, Pope Francis, is in the process of reviewing those sections of the Code that need to be updated, especially in conjunction with the Code of canon law of the Eastern Catholic churches. And that was promulgated in 1990. So the church has two codes, the East and the West, the West, which applies for the vast majority of us listening to you, but also for the Eastern churches, which have to be respected. So now if you're a canon lawyer, uh, do you study both or are you only, uh, have you only uh, studied just the Latin right and what we have as Roman Catholics? Well, we have to study both, and perhaps in previous generations the Eastern Church was not as well attended, but I do know that in my studies in the, uh, back in the 2000s, uh, 2010 to 2013, our professors regularly reminded us, remember the Eastern Code. There are two codes very important, that govern the universal church, the East and the West. So yes, we have to study both, and now they're placing greater emphasis. And for us here in Chicago, we have a very large uh, community of Eastern Catholics. You know, being in the Midwest, also I would say in the East Coast, you know, just a very, very significant Eastern Catholic population. So knowledge of the Eastern Code is fundamental. That's just no doubt. Good. Well, and as you're talking about the history, before we get into maybe, you know, some of the specifics of of canon law itself, but you were talking about the history here, that Mm -hmm. first first compiled code of canon law, it wasn't until 1917 that that was really, that that, that was promulgated throughout the church. Mm -hmm. And then we have an updated version in 1983. Mm -hmm. But we're talking almost two millennia of the church existing before there's this official code of canon law. Now, you know, you made reference, yes, there was canon law. Um, I think it was even, from what I, I remember reading, it was the 12th century when most of that was kind of compiled. So you have over a thousand years before you you have kind of this original summary and compilation of canon law, but then almost another 800 years before we get to, or at least 700 years before we get to the code of canon law being something there in 1917. Why this long, drawn out, this this kind of slow uh, process of finally getting to a point where we do have 
the code of canon law? You, you know that I'm a historian by training. So <laughs> I think when Cardinal George sent me away to study canon law, I was absolutely fascinated fascinated by the history of the Code of Canon Law, and he joked with me all the time, like, well, you know, Ramil, um, we also have to get to the, the, to the working of the law, not just the history. <laughs> so we had some good conversations about history. He was a, fa- a fabulous historian as well. But the Church, for many years, had an idea that there were universals, and classmates of mine would probably like to engage in a conversation with me about this. So for what it is, my understanding and my studies of the of the code of canon law was that the church governed in in generals in general principles and that anytime anything happened the bishops locally would handle the situation with the knowledge that there were certain universal guides and if anything required uh, the adjudication of the holy of the holy father they would send it up to rome so you can understand why many Americans and many, many Catholics say, well, what does Rome say? Because Rome would be the ultimate arbiter. Consequently, as things got more complicated in the world and certain challenges that arose, the church and her wisdom said, you know, there are a lot of different ways to interpret these things. I'm, I'm grossly simplifying the history of canon law, but... Oh, sure, sure. Ultimately, the, the decretals of Gratian were the very first attempt to try to put a corpus of laws that were universal and in one place. But ultimately, the Church and her wisdom said, there are just so many questions that need to be answered. What are the universals? Let's study, let's compile, and finally, you have the 1917 Code of Canon Law, the first official in one book, the general codes, the general uh, rules and regulations of the operations of the Church. Another thing that I remember reading about here, too, is that canon law is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but specifically deals with non-liturgical laws of the Church, uh, that it doesn't get into the finite parts of liturgy itself. Is that correct? Correct. The The Code of Canon Law, and this is where our American mindset tends to be, canon law operates very differently from civil law. Our law works on precedent. So what was done before, and then it's outlined. Whereas the Code of Canon Law has the general, the universal code, the universal canon, and then the situation is applied to that universal. The Church puts laws of liturgy in the ritual books themselves. So if you really want to know how the Mass is to be celebrated, then you look at the Roman Missal, the front part, the prenotanda, which is the introduction, and then the rubrics within the Roman Missal. This is the most common area what most, that most people want to know about. What does the code say about celebrating the Mass? You look in the Missal. If you want to know how, what vessels are to be used, what are the vestments, what are the positions of the priest, where is the altar supposed to be, all those things are in the uh, front of the Roman Missal. The general ideas of celebrating the holy sacrifice are going to be found in the code. So you must, uh, you must um, abstain from food one hour prior to receiving communion. That's in the code. How many times can you receive in one day? That's in the code. So the universals are found in the code of canon law. The particulars as far as, and, and also it's different in different parts of the world. How we celebrate in North America is slightly different from, say, Latin America or Europe. 
So it's adapted appropriately in light of the code. So as you're talking about this, uh, you know, it also might be good to talk about, you, you mentioned your fascination with the history of canon law, but then as you were talking with uh, Cardinal George, he said, don't get so caught up that you miss out on the working of the law. When we as Catholics, and I think, you know, going back to what you were saying, in our country, we're fascinated with law, with justice, with the justice system. You know, there's so many different legal television programs that are so popular. But inside the church, when we start talking about law, it might seem like it's a bit at odds or, or maybe in conflict with the gospel message because we talk about grace, we talk about mercy, we talk about forgiveness. But mercy doesn't necessarily mean that there's an absence of laws or an absence of guilt. Can, can you kind of help walk us through how these are actually uh, complementary and, and, and how laws and order and justice, they're actually necessary if we want to experience mercy? Absolutely. Uh, the famous canon 1752 of the 1983 Code of Canon Law, the very last canon, says the principal duty is the salvation of souls. Salvation of souls. That, that is the entire purpose of the law. So putting, let me step back a little bit. When the Second Vatican Council was requested, or when Pope John XXIII requested a review of canon law, the Second Vatican Council took into account all the changes that were happening in the world. And how, is, how does the tradition, sacred tradition, respond to the changes in the world? The original 1917 code was really about operations. The 1983 code was very deliberate. That's why from the 1960s until 1983, there was a long process of studying how the law can reflect our understanding of mercy and justice. So a, a real interesting development of the 83 Code was that there are what they call the doctrinal um, statements within the, uh, within the Code itself. So oftentimes you will find things like a statement of uh, a very general theological statement at the beginning of a section of the Code. Um, let me see if I can find one right now. I've got my handy-dandy code in front of me. So, the, the section on Book 2, The People of God, Canon 2000, uh, 204, Section 1 says, The Christian faithful are those who, inasmuch as they have been incorporated in Christ through baptism, have been constituted as the people of God. Okay, that's a, that's a theological statement right there. That was not found in the old code. It was presumed everybody knew that. But the 1983 Code and the revisers of the Code wanted to remind people there's an underpinning why there have to be rules and regulations. The law comes to life in our, in our Lord. So we have to remind people law is not a cold letter. It is actually vibrant. It's alive because the Word is Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh. Well, you know, we put the law into effect by the way we live our lives and how we bring Christ to others. Talking with Father Ramil Fajardo today here on The Inner Life. He's a priest in the Archdiocese of Chicago. He's a canon lawyer helping us understand 
at least here as, as quickly as we can move through this hour. Some of the parts of uh, the Code of Canon Law, how canon law impacts us as Catholics in our everyday lives. And maybe you have a question about canon law. You've had some burning question that you've wanted to ask a canon lawyer. Well, this is the hour to do so. And uh, we'd love to welcome you into the program today. Our phone number is 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. You can also email us, innerlife at relevantradio.com, and we'll continue our conversation here shortly. You're listening to Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. We receive over a million prayer requests every year, thanks in part to the Catholic Order of Foresters studio line, helping us stay connected to your intentions. Learn how our sponsor can support your family with life insurance at relevantradio.com slash forester, an Illinois life insurance society not available in all states. Thanks for joining us here during this hour of The Inner Life. I'm Josh Raymond, our spiritual director today, Father Ramil Fajardo, a priest in the Archdiocese of Chicago, and he's also a canon lawyer, and that's what we're talking about, canon law today here on The Inner Life. And maybe you have a question about canon law, the rules that we observe within the Catholic Church, and uh, we're, we're welcoming your phone calls, 888-914-9149, or our email address is innerlife at relevantradio.com. And uh, Father Emil, as you were talking about right before the break with canon law really should point us back to Jesus. Um, you know, that, that's, that's where everything needs to find its foundation. With canon law also, uh, you know, you talked about there's this kind of universal idea of canon law, and then there's the application. Uh, can you help walk us through that universal leading us to application? How, maybe some, some examples of how we might see that in canon law. Absolutely. Uh, let me just read this one section from the Apostolic Constitution, Sacre Disciplinae Legis, which promulgated the Code of Canon Law. This was by Pope St. John Paul II. He writes in the Apostolic Constitution, the highest level of document, by the way, quote, as a matter of fact, the code of canon law is extremely necessary for the church. Since the church is organized as a social and visible structure, it must also have norms in order that its hierarchical and organic structure be visible, in order that the exercise of the functions divinely entrusted to it, especially that of sacred power and of the administration of sacraments, may be adequately organized in order that the mutual relations of the faithful may be regulated according to justice based upon charity, with the rights of individuals guaranteed and well-defined, in order, finally, that the common initiatives undertaken to live a Christian life ever more perfectly may be sustained, strengthened, and fostered by canonical norms. End quote. There you have the reason we need a structure in order that every part operates in unison with the Holy Spirit guiding us. Peter guarantees that, that unity, the Holy Spirit will enliven us and strengthen us, and that everybody knows what the expectations are and what the mission is all about. So there, in essence, is the universal. I'll give you a particular example. The, the way we celebrate Mass in the United States is 
pretty much this is the way we do it. You know, you, you walk in, you make the sign of the cross, and then opening prayer, you sit, you kneel, stand, all those things. Mm-hmm. Those are all customs. The code certainly doesn't tell us how to sit, kneel, stand, sing, whatever, in the code of canon law. It's generally outlined in the Roman Missal, but the customs locally, how were these things done? And it might surprise a lot of people that in many parts of the world, the only time that people kneel would be when the priest lays his hands upon the gifts and invokes the Holy Spirit, the epiclesis, that's when people kneel, and the custom is to ring a bell when the consecration takes place of the host and of the chalice, the bread and the wine, when they're consecrated. Then, as soon as he genuflects in adoration and says the mystery of faith, then people stand up again. That's the universal custom the United States had a particular request, and that is from the moment we finish holy, 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 we kneel until the very end when he says through him, with him, in him. That's a particular uh, custom requested by the United States. So with that particular custom, but again, this is something we wouldn't find in canon law because it's it's unique to the U.S. and the U.S. bishops. Um, so right. with another thing I, it might be worth pointing out here, too, if you're interested in, if, if, I don't know, maybe you have a week to kill and you really want to read through the Code of Canon Law, you can find <laughs> the entire Code of Canon Law. It's up on the Vatican website, absolutely up free. You can go website. through and read the, uh, the entire thing. Um, but I, I guess I'm just thinking here, too, in some of the ways that, that you work, and maybe before we get into this, I'll just ask you, as a canon lawyer, um, what does an average day as a canon lawyer, what does that consist of for you? <laughs> well, I think, I think our, our people need to know that what we're talking about encompasses three years of study. <laughs> so we're, we're not even scratching, you know, this is this oh, a sure, lot sure. of information. Uh, as a canon lawyer, obviously, that's my, that's my mission in the church, to serve the church and the judiciary. But first and foremost, I'm a priest. So it always begins with praise, worship, and adoration of our Lord, first thing. So that's our common, our common uh, mission, is to praise, worship, and adore God. So what is an everyday thing like? If I have morning Mass, I'll say Mass, certainly prayers, and then I go to the office over here at the Metropolitan Tribunal, 835 North Rush Street, and I work in the, metro, uh, in the matrimonial side of the tribunal. The tribunal is divided up into different sections. There is the canonical affairs division, which handles usually marriage documentation and odd questions. And let's put in air quotes, odd questions. They, they're kind of like the first line of defense. The tribunal, on the other hand, handles the deliberative side. So for me, I work in the matrimonial side. I work with declarations of nullity. There are other areas of the tribunal, such as the alienation of church property, the unfortunate uh, situations where there are uh, necessary trials regarding misbehavior. That has to take place, whether it's the staff or the clergy, whatever. That's a different section. But it's you come in, I come in, I review my cases in front of me. I, you know, each one is getting full attention. There's no such thing as statistics for me. 
I come in, I take a look at my workload, and I begin deliberations. I read, I read, I read. Uh, my former judicial vicar, now Bishop Jeffrey Grob, when I was brought on board, told me, Ramil, you better have a very, very strong spiritual life because you're going to read in the matrimonial tribunal some of the more unfortunate things about people's lives and marriages. So it takes a strong spiritual anchoring to make sure that, A, one does not become discouraged, but also, number two, that the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom to help these people. It is truly, truly ministry. It is not a bureaucratic thing to do. This is truly ministry. It's slightly different. It's not like I'm standing at the altar or in the confessional. That's part of it. But here I'm dealing with people who are hurting. And consequently, they need an answer. They've asked a question. I'm trying to answer it for them. Well, Father, kind of picking up on that, let's go to the phone. So again, I'll throw out the phone number here, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. As we're talking with Father Ramil Fajardo today, he's a priest in the Archdiocese of Chicago. He's a canon lawyer, and we're trying to take a deeper look at canon law and especially how it impacts our lives as everyday Catholics. Why is it important to have an understanding of canon law? Maybe you have a question about canon law, the rules that we observe within the Catholic Church. 888-914-9149. Father, we've got Marilyn who's calling in from Coventry, Rhode Island. Marilyn, you're on the air. Welcome. Hello, Father. Um, Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Good morning. My question is regarding annulment. And Mm -hmm. the question is, what are some of the reasons why an annulment would not be granted? I understand why they would be, why they would be and uh, I was granted an annulment myself, so I do understand the process, and I mm-hmm. understand that you know it's based on is it or is it not a sacramental marriage? I get that, but I have a son who was not granted. Uh, and so uh, that's my question. What would cause an, uh, an annulment to be rejected? Some of the reasons. Okay. I'm sure there are many. <laughs> well, it, it really comes down to one or two at the most, because uh, that's always a starting point. Number one, uh, the Church does not annul a marriage. We declare it null in that the consent was defective or lacking when somebody was standing at the altar in front of the priest and the congregation. Okay. Canon 1060 is our guiding principle. Marriage possesses the favor of the law. Therefore, in a case of doubt, the validity of a marriage must be upheld until the contrary is proven. So whoever files for a declaration of nullity is trying to prove that one or both did not have valid consent at the moment of the exchange. Marriage has a favor of the law. The church presumes that somebody questioning it will provide the proof. So the question is, why some are granted and others are not? Well, was, was it proven adequately? Was it proven adequately uh, with moral certitude? When the judge or judges make their decision, they have to swear before Almighty God that with moral certitude, the case was proven, the petition was proven. And it's not about, uh, you know, the danger is that in matrimonial trials, sometimes our applicants are replaying the civil divorce. 
which is horrifying. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I'm one of the least inhibited tongues among all my friends. I'm, I'm horrified sometimes what, how angry people are about this. And I have to kind of step back and just say, I'm answering simply a question, just answering a question and try to help them return to the practice of the faith. And so that's that. if that helps, the simple question is this. The petitioner has to prove that the consent was, in fact, missing or defective. That's, that's, if their case is strong enough, then the Church says, we answer one question. The marriage can be declared null or invalid because the consent was defective or lacking. That's all we're doing. Marilyn, thanks so much for the phone call. Um, great question. And kind of following up what you were saying right before that, you know, as you go in to your daily work as a canon lawyer, you're dealing with the matrimonial side of things there. How do you try and exercise that pastoral function of your priesthood when you have to give somebody the answer that they're not wanting? You know, when you have to say, no, I'm sorry, you're not going to be granted an annulment. And that can possibly make them upset. It might drive them away from the church. How do you try and balance that pastoral with also just being honest and truthful in the rulings and the decisions that have to come forth? You know, Josh, there's not a single canonist that doesn't struggle with that. Not a single one. And I can only answer for myself, which is I struggle. It is a very difficult thing to have to tell anybody. And, you know, I would never want to hide behind bureaucracy such as, here's your letter, uh, I'm sorry, it, it was not granted. I would never want to hide behind that. Um, so rising to the challenge is that if I'm a pastoral minister, then if they have questions, I need to be ready to invite them into the office to have a conversation and to give them the options as to where they take their petition next. Do they wish to appeal my decision? Do they wish to just accept it and say, okay, for now, the, that, that's not possible? Um, and sometimes, too, we're not here to tell them how to get an affirmative decision. We're here to answer their question. Is this a valid marriage or not? That's all we're doing. We're not going. We're not going to guide them into into the right answer. That's this is justice. And again, Canon 1060, marriage possesses the favor of the law. We're here to be skeptical, and we have to give justice. But we're trained to defend marriage first. And I can tell you, canonists really do struggle with this. They really do struggle yeah. with trying to tell them, "I'm sorry, you just didn't prove it. It's nothing personal. You just didn't prove it." Uh, another question from a caller, and I was thinking about this too. You mentioned you work in matrimonial, so I'll kind of combine a question of my own along with this. Um, my question, you mentioned you, you work in the matrimonial side, that there are other canon lawyers who do, de, um, deal with other areas, but you also said earlier you had to study both Western and Eastern Latin uh, canon law as well as canon law for Eastern Catholics. Do all canon lawyers focus on the entire code of canon law and then just work in a certain area, or do different canon lawyers have 
kind of an area of expertise and focus that they have studied over other aspects, kind of in the same way that civil law, you know, some some attorneys might focus on tax law or might be experts in criminal law or environmental law, you know, different things like that. Is that similar with canon lawyers or no, you just happen to work in an area, but you're kind of a broad expert in all of canon law? Many of us are specialists. It all depends on the reason for our bishops, our cardinals, sending us off for studies. And I will, again, just myself, when Cardinal George sent me, he said, we need a canonist. It is time to send more people to school and to prepare the next generation of canonists. Uh, I wasn't told what I was going to study. I was just told you are studying canon law. The reality is that there are certain needs in the diocese. And for me, it's a matrimonial trial. It is a, is the, I would say this is the principal area that many canonists are sent away by their bishops. Now, that being said, there are more than, there are more than enough lay men, lay women, religious sisters who go study canon law. And for them, they have to defend, for example, the religious sisters. They have to also be aware of the code concerning religious. They're, they're not going to necessarily deal with matrimonial unless they work for the diocese. So knowledge of religious law and also governing a religious institute. Um, when some people, laymen, laywomen, go into code of canon law, usually it's for matrimonial, but then they can also do issues of accusations against clergy or lay, uh, lay staff in a, in a parish. They, they're called in on a different kind of level, but they should know more in different areas. Then there are some who are specifically sent away to deal with, say, questions of administration of parishes. The unfortunate reality of sometimes parishes are going to have to be dissolved or reconstituted. That's also a very specialized area because you're dealing with real estate, you're dealing with finances. Very complex. Very complex. So to answer your question, we all go in here as specialists or or as uh, generalists, but the actual practice, when you get back to report to the diocese, they have something in mind for you. Very good. Uh, So then Jim from Chicago had called in. He had uh, another question dealing with kind of the looking at civil law versus canon law. And he said if if, uh, in civil law you have penalties for certain things that, you know, crimes or different things that you might do, are there penalties in canon law as well, or is, do we have to look at canon law as something completely different from civil law? Absolutely, there are, uh, there are penalties. Um, Pope Francis just very recently promulgated the new Book 6 on sanctions in the Church. It's a sweeping uh, change, not removing the previous um, section. It's called the. It's called Book Six: Sanctions in the Church. There are seven books in the Code of Canon Law. Book Six is called Sanctions in the Church, and Pope Francis revised and strengthened areas in light of what happened in 2000 and after, as far as the sex abuse crisis and, and other grave issues of failure. The Holy Father tightened things up. It's always been there. But it's, it's really been tightened up by the Holy Father to reflect our experiences since 2000. So, so yes, well, there, are, Jim, there are penalties. 
Yeah, Jim, thanks for the question. Great one. And uh, again, our phone lines are open as we're talking with Father Ramil Fajardo today here on The Inner Life. He's a priest in the Archdiocese of Chicago and a canon lawyer. And we're talking about canon law, how we can have a better understanding of what it is, but also how does it impact us in our everyday lives as Catholics? Our studio line to call in and join the program. If you have a question for Father Ramil, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149, or email us, innerlife at relevantradio.com. More of your phone calls and more with Father Ramil right after this here on The Inner Life. You're listening to Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Today we'd like to thank Raymond, who's listening in New Jersey, for donating his Subaru. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating your old vehicle by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. Thanks so much for being a part of The Inner Life today here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. As We're talking about canon law, understanding what canon law is, how it impacts us as Catholics, and talking with a canon lawyer, Father Ramil Fajardo, a priest in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Also taking your phone calls at 888-914-9149. If you've just been waiting to ask a canon lawyer a question, this is your opportunity. 888-914-9149. And, uh, Father, let's go back to the phones. We've got Mary calling in from California. Mary, welcome to The Inner Life. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm, my question is regarding uh, the seal of confession, and mm-hmm. I understand that, you know, the, a priest may not divulge what was said in confession. Um, I had an experience where a priest did say something that somebody said on their deathbed in a confession and also at a regular um, confession to me because I happen to know the person and I never felt good about this and I never knew what my role as a lay person was in that. Well, uh, as as my professor in Canon Law School would have said, that's a naughty. You know, first and foremost, priests do not talk about what they've heard in, in confession. Period. Full stop. Priests do not talk about what they hear in confession. It's just, it's a very serious, very serious uh, sin. And it's, it requires the Holy Father having to lift any penalties that are resulting in that. It's, it's that serious. For example, like suspension from duties, suspension from one's office. You, you know, you could even be, you could even be removed as a priest for, for the seriousness of such a thing. The, the Holy Father really emphasized that in his promulgation of the new book six, sanctions, penal sanctions in the church. It's, it's one of those things that, again, reverend fathers do not talk about what you hear in confession, plain and simple. So as far as your role in it, if you overheard something, the code does have a, have a comment about that, which is you are now required to keep the, the confessional seal. You cannot talk about it. Whatever you heard by, by mistake and, or by father's uh, error, you are now bound by that confessional seal. It's that strong. It's simply that strong. It's just what you hear must be respected because there are other people involved. Absolutely, uh, absolutely must be protected, that seal. Otherwise, how will people ever learn trust if in the most uh, 
intimate moment where they're confessing their sins to our Lord through the instrumentation of the priest, that it, it gets out. Plain and simple, this is where you need law. No, fathers, don't talk about it. Anyone who overhears, you are now bound by that seal. Uh, Father, as you're answering Mary here and her question on the seal uh, of confession, if she's bound by that, is she obligated to then take that maybe to her bishop? Um, you know, if there has been that break of the seal, is there any obligation on her part outside of just keeping that seal herself? She can. She should speak to the bishop about it and just say that this was the this was the result, and I overheard it. Um, can't tell any details even to the bishop about what she heard. Right, and right. That seal has been right has been imposed on her. Mary can go and say, I'm very concerned. I am aware that the Code of Canon Law has sealed me now, and I cannot tell you the details. However, this greatly disturbed me that I'm sure it must have been a mistake. It had to have been a mistake. Father talked about it, but it happened. And this is something that the bishop should look into. Minimally, a, a memo to all priests saying again, please remember the seal of confession. And then, in particular, maybe he should speak with Father and just say, wait a second, no, I, I heard a complaint here. What's that all about? He has to get to the bottom of that. But she can't, obviously cannot talk about it, but she can talk about what occurred and what disturbed her. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a tough situation, Mary. Thanks for calling in. Um, Father Ramil Fajardo, again, our guest here on The Inner Life as we're talking about canon law and taking your phone calls at 888-914-9149, Father, for the average Catholic, if there's one thing that they should, I guess, know about canon law or how it impacts them, what would you say that is? How should they understand and maybe approach canon law so that they have a better knowledge of it and what it means for them in their day-to-day lives? The Code of Canon Law is not a hammer. It is not a hammer by which, if you cross this line, you will you will uh, pay a price. It's in there. We have to have rules and regulations and good order. Absolutely. Absolutely. But for the average person trying to get closer to the Lord, to be an apostle in the world, the Code of Canon Law has great exhortations to live the faith and to do it in line with the universal principles that obligate everyone around the world to do it the Catholic way, whether it's the Latin West or the Eastern Catholic churches, there's a universal. But it's always undermined, uh, it's always undergirded by Canon 1752. The salvation of souls is our first priority. So with that being said, we need rules and regulations. Those who, those who need to be will be reprimanded and will be punished if necessary. But that's not the reason solely the reason for the code. It is to give right order, and I think that impetus, that structure, that exhortation to be an apostle in the world, to do apostolate, to make Christ better known, as Mother Cabrini would have always said, make Christ better known. Uh, you know, the other thing, as you were talking about um, earlier in the hour, that there are these declarations of faith, there's theological declarations that we have in the updated version of the Code of Canon Law, and you made reference to one in book two that deals with the people of God, the members of the church. Mm-hmm. 
and you read the very first code, uh, the the first canon there, right at the outset where it defines who the members of the church are, but then it goes on to identify certain obligations as well as certain rights that every baptized Catholic has within the church. And I was thinking about that, how, you know, as Americans, most of us, especially adults, we're probably aware of certain rights that we have as citizens in our country. You know, we've heard the words of, Declar- of the Declaration of Independence. We have the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Many of us know a number of the rights that we have in those first ten amendments of the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, you know, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, of the press, uh, freedom of peaceful protest. You don't have to incriminate yourself if you're accused of a crime. You have a right to a speedy and public trial with a jury. Right, all these different things. Mm -hmm. And I think most of us are probably familiar with at least some of those in our country. But when it comes to the church, we have these rights, and we also have obligations as members of the church. I know I'm not nearly as familiar with these as they're listed in canon law. And I would guess that many Catholics are kind of in that same situation. are there any canons that stand out to you, especially kind of where you picked up in that part of the Christian faithful, things that would be worth looking at and reading through, important for every Catholic to know? Exactly. Uh, book two, the people of God, our listeners should go to Canon 204 and following. In fact, beginning at Canon 208, the obligations and rights of all the Christian faithful talks about who we are as the mystical body, because then it will go into the obligations of the laity, and then it will go into the obligations of the sacred ministers, and then we will go into the hierarchical structure of the Church. It it just, it flows so nicely, and it begins with our um, our universal status as the faithful, and then the lay faithful, and then the clerical faithful, and then we get into more details about how to live our lives, and especially for those who are in the clerical state. How do you dress? How do you behave? What sort of business should you get into or not? Things like that. That's when you start seeing, okay, don't do this, do that. But yes, beginning with Book 2, Canon 204, and following. Good. And again, uh, the Code of... The Code of Canon Law is completely free and available on the Vatican website. You can just do a search online for it. Uh, really down to just a few seconds here, but also had Dave, who wrote in to us, said he's in formation for the permanent diaconate, looking for a good book on canon law. Any recommendations, Father? Off the top of my head, the one that, I, uh, that I've seen is Canon Law Explained, a handbook for laymen, by Monsignor Lawrence Spiteri, S-P-I-T-E-R-I. Wonderful. Uh, Father Emil Fajardo, uh, we've got about 20 seconds left here. Could I ask you to offer a blessing for our listeners as we conclude the hour? Almighty and gracious God, on this Flag Day, help us to love our country and to bring Christ to all whom we meet by our lives of apostolic zeal. Grant that we have the supernatural outlook to bring him to all and to get him to be known better. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Father Ramil. Always good to talk with you. And of course, if you joined us late, you'd like to listen to any part of the earlier uh, portion of the hour, you can find that. And the podcast will be posted here in just a short little bit at relevantradio.com, or you can find it on the Relevant Radio app. And of course, want to invite you to join us here tomorrow on The Inner Life. Stay tuned. Mass next here on Relevant Radio.